Hi, I'm Ken Whiteley. I am a musician, singer, songwriter, record producer, and uh, among my other hats that I have worn in this crazy mixed up life that we all are trying to make our way through. And uh, you're listening to Talking Blues. I'm so happy to be in conversation with Mako Funasaka. And we've we've worked together in the video realm. He has been behind a camera when I've been performing more than once. And so, Mako, it's great to talk to you. So I want to start way at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about Northern Ontario's Whiteley Orchestra. Well, okay. I mean, I'll tell you what I know, which is all secondhand. I obviously wasn't there in the 1920s or 30s. Right. Uh, but, uh, but apparently my grandfather and my uncle Eric certainly were. My dad was there as a teenager. And my grandfather, Frank Whiteley, uh, who was a manager at the mill in Dryden, uh, was a piano player, and my Uncle Eric played the drums. And so they played dance music. There was fiddle, banjo, a guy named Ken Collins, who was sort of more my dad and my uncle's age, played banjo uh, a, and a trumpet player. That was the, the lineup, fiddle, trumpet, banjo, drums, and piano. And... And uh, they played dances, you know, all kinds of stuff. So we have one photograph from that era of the orchestra. It's sort of clearly their promo photo, probably what appeared on posters up there and stuff like that. This is up in Dryden. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I've asked, you know, later in his life, I asked my Uncle Eric a little bit about this. He was my dad's older brother. And uh, he said, oh, we played all kinds of things, you know. You know, I said, did you play fiddle tunes? You know, because they were playing for dances. Oh, yeah. We played, you know, uh, reels and waltzes and scottishes and, you know, uh, foxtrots and all kinds of things, you know. that, And that's about as much as I know. Do you know if it goes back any further than your grandfather? Like, the, the, was your great-great-grandfather a musician? Well, I, there's lots of music sprinkled out that I do know about. I, I really don't know that much about the Whiteleys from before they uh, moved to Canada right after the First World War. So my dad was born in Sheffield, England uh, in 1914 and the middle of three sons and, and the family moved to Canada in 1919. And uh, and they mo lived in a few different places, sort of trying to find out where they were going to wind up. Uh, they moved originally to Hamil Hamilton, Ontario, and they were up in the area near Charbot Lake, up near there for a while. And, and, and then they ended up in Dryden for a while. They were out at a, um, like a forest ranger site for, for a little while, apparently. And then my, my grandfather got the job at the, at the mill, and worked his way up to manager, one of the managers, and uh, and that's about as much as I know of that. And I, you know, my my older cousin uh, Walter, he may know a little bit more about the English side. He has sort of been to England and tried to find a few. And I think he actually, and my uncle Frank, the youngest brother, went to England and and I think he met a few of his 
you know, elderly ants and things like that. But I, I don't really know that much more there. But the, um, but I do know, you know, all three of the brothers played music. My uh, uncle Frank, the younger brother, has a song in the United Church hymn book, uh, you know, and he played organ. And my father was much more interested in visual art. For a while, he studied painting with J.E.H. McDonald from the Group of Seven. And wow. McDonald famously told him, he said, Ron, you know, don't don't become an artist. It's a terrible way to make a living. <laughs> you know, do something with your artistic abilities where you could actually make a living. So my dad uh, took that advice and, and went to the University of Manitoba and studied architecture. And, and so that's what, um, you know, he became an architect and then... Uh, a professor of architecture. But when Chris and I began playing music, you know, he knew how to tune a guitar. We always grew up with recorders and and uh, harmonicas, you know, there were always musical instruments around. And uh, we used to have this old cardboard Roy Rogers guitar when we were really little. Um, and, you know, so when when I was just turning 13 I'm just about to turn 13 my brother's birthday is a week before mine and he's three years older so Chris was really wanted to get a guitar he's he's a, he's just turning going from 15 to 16 and my parents have bought him a guitar unbeknownst to him and uh, the week before his birthday he comes home and he says look what I got I just <laughs> traded a basketball seven dollars for this you know guitar and and so what that meant was that within a sort of a week, we got two guitars into the house. Wow. And so he started playing it, and then I started playing it. Now, I was already taking piano lessons at this point. Uh, I'd wanted to take piano lessons. And when I, the fall of when I was 12, we moved into a house, and one of the big exciting things for me was that there was a piano in the basement of the house that had been put there before the the house was finished being built and you know and it was left there for us so we inherited this this uh, upright piano in the basement and uh so you know i was playing piano and then started playing guitar and then in the summer that summer between uh you know playing guitar and 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 then i started applying what i was doing on the guitar to the piano and i started learning chords on the piano and playing the piano by ear as well. What were you playing? What kind of music were you playing? So we were uh, into the folk music scene. The the the, you know, first of all, the on the pop charts of of the early '60s, uh, you know, the Kingston Trio and Peter Paul and Mary and all that kind of stuff was was, was popular music of its day, and uh, and we quickly gravitated particularly my brother i i was i was lucky enough to sort of have this kind of perpetual influence around me that um you know we found out you know okay the you know peter paul and mary and they recorded this incredible song called blown in the wind oh my goodness you've got to hear this song you've got to imagine you know this nobody's heard this song before and you know hearing it and it was just like wow that's so it's poetic and it's you know, and then you find it. Oh, and that song was was written by this guy Bob Dylan or something. You know, and uh, you know, and okay. So the, so we're we. It was a very quick um, immersion. You know, within months we went from that sort of popular stuff to 
discovering Pete Seeger and Bob Dylan and Lead Belly and Woody Guthrie and all, you know, all the Folkways records. We started making weekly pilgrimages to Sam the Record Man. And John Norris, who ran Coda Magazine and, and subsequently had Jazz and Blues Record Center. Uh, but he, at that point, was, was sort of the... He sat up on his stool on the second floor at Sam the Record Man, and he ran the... It was blues, folk, and jazz section of Sam's. And right. we would go there every week. We would get our allowance on Thursday night, and we would take the, the subway down to... To, and street and down to Sam's on Young Street, and go there. And every week we would each buy a record, and you know, buying all all kinds of this, you know, everything we could put our hands on. I'm curious when you started. So both of you started playing guitar within a week of each other. Yeah. So I presume that was a major advantage in that you were kind of learning off of each other. Absolutely, absolutely. And then this seminal thing happened in the in the uh, summer of 1964. The Mariposa Folk Festival was supposed to have been happening up in Orillia. But the week before the festival, the um, the town council in, in Orillia passed a bylaw forbidding outdoor music festivals or whatever it was, you know. You know, basically it wasn't allowed to happen. And so with you know four or five days left they had to scramble for a new site and they ended up having it at exhibition stadium at the foot of bathurst street in toronto most of the people who are at this point running it mariposa was started by this woman ruth jones in orillia but by 1964 there was a, a woman named estelle klein and a guy named randy ferris who had a folk music show that we would listen to on ckfh every, you know and and uh, so they were now involved in running it. Uh, I probably Richard Flohill was involved, if not that year, certainly within a year or so of that moment. So we, so it's at the ballpark where we would go and see the Toronto Maple Leafs of the International League, you know, Triple A ball right. uh, p playing, and Chris and I would, you know, have been going to baseball games there. So Chris begged to go, and then I begged to be allowed to tag along. <laughs> And, and um, you know, so there we go. You know, the opening act, that first, uh, first uh, the Friday night concert is Gord Lightfoot, you know, from Morelia, Ontario. And, and uh, you know, this, the memorable song for me of his set was The Piddlin' Dog from Richmond Hill. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, Buffy St. Marie was playing. I was, uh, you know, already into her records, you know, big influence um jean carignon was there uh but mississippi john hurt played and wow. he was just so beautiful but sonny terry and brownie mcgee were supposed to have been playing there but they couldn't come because they didn't get the word that the venue had changed and in those days people didn't have cell phones there was no internet you know they're driving around on driving around in their buick or whatever it was that they <laughs> drove in the 60s and and um, that was, well, I guess Brownie would have still been driving, you know. So they did. They never found out about the venue change. They just get to a and say, "Nope, no Mariposa here." Wow. And and so at the last minute, um, they the organizers called up Shelley Abrams, who used to run uh, the Village Corner Club in Yorkville, and Reverend Gary Davis was playing at the Village Corner that weekend. And so instead of instead of um, 
Sonny and Brownie playing, Reverend Gary Davis came down. And he ended up being there, play, doing a concert on that Friday night. And he was like, my mind was blown, you know, as a beginning guitar player, seeing this guy was just even more so than John Hurt. He, John Hurt was beautiful in the way that he just like, you wanted this guy to, you know, be another grandfather for you. You mm -hmm. know, he was just like this beautiful, kindly, humorous, you know, not saccharine, but just so sweet uh, presence. And then Gary Davis was like this fire and lightning, you know, just flicking off his fingers. And so then on the Sunday of the festival, it's just an afternoon program. And we go down there and, and I'm watching Gary Davis and John Hurt meet each other for the first time and hanging out together and sitting in the dugout, trading tunes back and forth. And I'm going... Oh man, this is this is so cool. These you know, and the, you could just it was visceral the excitement that they were, you know, that they were so happy to to meet each other. John Hurt was relatively new to this whole folk scene. Gary Davis less so, but they didn't have a lot of contemporaries of the you know African American contemporaries who were good guitar players who were, you know, playing these these old what, you know, what I think of now as old songs. You know, you think of when, you know, John Hurt recorded in 1928 or whenever it was, Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. And, right. you know, Gary Davis making his records in the 30s. Like, this was only 30 years later. You know, it's not like, like now I'm talking about an event that happened, you know, 55, 56, seven years ago now. And, and uh, you know, so it's a lot, we're a lot longer removed in time than at that point they were from wh when they had been young men in the in the tw late 20s and 30s recording. What, was this the first time you saw live music or had you seen a lot of live uh, music? I, I had not. Well, I mean, you see, you know, like uh, the, the I'd been to see musicals at the O'Keefe Center or I'd, you know, and we always, you know, my grandfather uh, came to live with us in 1958, my grandfather on my mother's side. And that's a whole other story about, you know, background, because he he grew up also in northern Ontario, born in 1874 in a town called Bruce Mines. And his mother used to write hymns. And I didn't find this out until uh, my mother passed away and one of her cousins gave me the obituary of this woman who had been their mutual grandparent and um, and found out that she used to have up in Bruce Mines, like it talked about in her obituary from 1910 or whenever it was, you know, how they would have these known for her musical evenings, you know, people coming over and singing, you know, and, and things like that. And so my grandfather, he was someone who, you know, he loved parties and social gatherings and would always, uh, you, you know, recitations, singing songs. He would break into a song or say someone else, you know, give us a song, give us a tune, you know. And and um, his sister was married to, um, my Aunt Ella was married to my Uncle Dave, and he was a, a cellist. And um, when we first, so we were, my brother and I were actually born in the United States when my dad was teaching uh, at 
Penn State and Kansas State in, in you know in in the states, teaching architecture. So in 1956, when I was five and Chris was eight, we moved back to Canada, and we stayed for that summer with my aunt Ella and Uncle Dave in this house that had you know a grand piano and string quartets coming over to rehearse and you know and my uncle dave would sometimes take the cello up on his up on his uh, lap and play it you know play it pizzicato style and sing little songs and and so on so you know and that was the greatest thing you know to have this grand piano and you know that's where that you know that's why i was so excited when i was 12 to move into this house with a piano because you know that was always so great for me to be and we and that summer chris and i lived on the third floor of their house in north toronto and there was this old 78 record player up there you know you'd hand crank it so you could make it go faster or slower you know it was, you could make it sound really funny you know by cranking it up really and we would listen to Sussex by the sea and all these 78s that you know my aunt and uncle had up in their attic and uh you know so so that was that was the environment we grew up in but so then you know then now I'm 13 and I'm at this Mariposa Folk Festival and I'm seeing not just John Hurd and Gary Davis meet each other but then Richard Waterman the the man who had um rediscovered John Hurt uh, that the 18 days before the Mariposa Festival, he had, you know, hey, I bet there's more of these guys around. And he had found Skip James and in a hospital bed. And the following week, he was planning to take John Hurt and Skip James both to the Newport Folk Festival, wow. which was going to be a much bigger deal, like 25,000 people. And he wanted Skip James even though Skip James was like 18 days from lying in a hospital bed being ready to die, he wanted to at least get his feet wet with what this whole folk music scene was going to be like. Brought him unscheduled, unannounced to Mariposa and on the Sunday afternoon, he gave a concert. And that was sort of the, the crowning thing that just kind of like blew my mind. There was this high keening voice you know and for those who don't know skip james you know he sang with this intensity but a very uh is very interior it's kind of i'd rather be the devil than be my woman's man you know and with another gr very idiosyncratic but great guitar player and um you know, so th at the end of that afternoon, my mind is totally blown. And I'm like, those guys are so great. I, you know, I, that's what I want to be, an old blues singer. You know, the, what could be better than to be <laughs> one of those guys? And so that's really where that whole, um, you know, that was a changing point in my life. And then, so we then, at the end of that summer, we convinced our parents on a summer vacation. We were going down and visiting relatives and going to different you know, places. We saw Gettysburg and, you know, different, we said, but the Philadelphia Folk Festival is at the end of August. Could we arrange our family vacation so that Chris and I can go to the Philadelphia Folk Festival for, for at least a day and a night? And, and so we got to do that. And there I see John Hurd is there again. And there's Sun House. And again, my mind is blown. And again, you know, like, so this is a whole other world of the blues where it's like this intense, intense but 
out there. So he's kind of like got the fire of Gary Davis and the intensity of Skip James and the, and it's like just explosive, you know, and, uh, you know, and then also at that same festival seeing, you know, um, Peter Lafarge, this great, you know, uh, First Nations songwriter and Tom Paxton for the first time and Phil Oaks and, you know, all this political music that was being made and, uh, uh, Bernice Reagan was there from the Freedom Singers and who later sub, sub, Sweet Honey in the Rock and you know so it's just like a lot of incredible music um, uh, John Sebastian had come down from Greenwich Village and he had met John Hurd in Greenwich Village so not in his concert but in informal like sitting around John Hurt would love to just sit around and play music get under a tree you know it wasn't scheduled and John Sebastian from the Love and Spoon later would go back and form the Love and Spoonful. That's that follow that fall, uh, based on a title from a song from John Hurt, and he was playing harmonica with John Hurt, and so my brother went up to him and said, "How are you doing that? How are you getting those? You know, because we had harmonicas, and you know, he bending the notes, and how's it? How's he doing that? And so he, you know." quickly gave the basic idea that you know you would play what was called you sometimes called cross harp or in harp or what you know so where you're playing you know if you're playing in the key of c you would use a g harmonica and that gives that means that your that your tonic your do note is an inblown note and and it and it means you have the flat seventh as one of the notes and it means that your third is an inblown note that, and the inblown notes are much easier to bend than the out notes. And so you can bend that third and get that, you know, and and that's the key to sort of blues harmonica is those. And so he just, you know, very briefly, but there was enough to kind of get Chris going on the harmonica. And, you know, so so there was so much, you know, they, they kind of say, you know, everything you need to know you learn in kindergarten. Everything I needed to know was kind of laid out there for me in 19, the summer of 1964 <laughs> when I was 13. There was, you know, years of work to, to, to go further on it. I mean, and I'm, of course, being slightly facetious, but it certainly was an incredible uh, immersion. And it just so, I'm so grateful and have so much gratitude that I, had the opportunity to to be there and I got to see those guys play a number of times. How great were your parents that they would say, Yeah, we'll take you there to the Philadelphia Folk Festival? Well, you know, my father was an unusual guy in a lot of ways. Um uh he was not only musical uh you know, like about eight years before he died, he bought himself an electric organ. And he had, you know, his dad had played piano, but he wasn't a piano player, but he just, he knew how to read music and he was playing, playing organ. And, and, you know, he always had that artist sensibility. Um, and I think that's why, you know, he enjoyed teaching more than practicing. He was, uh, you know, he practiced as an architect. He worked with this guy in Toronto, John Parkin, when we first came back from, from the United States, and he worked on uh, the Toronto City Hall with Vilio Ravel and different things. But he found the ideas much more interesting than the um, practice of the business side of 
of of architecture and hustling gigs and putting you know making an appearance and all that sort of stuff you know that the kind of work that helped you you know uh gave you an elevated stature and as you know i i get the impression from the little i got from him as a kid that it's not that difference in the music business you know the way that that uh you know you you're only as good as your last record or you're only as good as your last mm. building i don't know but uh anyway he so it, when we wanted to be musicians when we you know were 20 years old and wanted to be a musician he was sympathetic to it my mother was always always you know asking me you know cuz i i went from high school i did one year of teachers college it was the last year you could do that so I'm 19 years old. I went to teacher's college and then I got a job teaching at the largest inner city school in Metro Toronto. There was like 1,250 elementary kids, like just K to, K to grade six. And I, there's six classes of grade one. They gave me all the kids they thought would most benefit from a young, energetic male teacher in grade one. And... I was t totally overwhelmed. This was at this housing project. So many problems. And I was kind of overwhelmed with the responsibility of like, oh, man, you know, this is so important. What these kids, you know, there's their lives are uh, at, at stake here. If I don't get this right, you know, I, I, I created this huge stress for myself before I the first day of teaching. And and these kids did have these huge problems. And what I didn't realize until about a year later was that that teaching has a lot more in common with giving a show than it does with with helping the soul be nurtured. And, you know, when you've got a classroom of 24 kids and 18 of those kids have serious problems, you're it's about, you know, like there's a there's there's ways to make that happen and there's I've seen so many really great teachers and you know over the years but you know fortunately they'd hired too many teachers that year and they asked me if I'd consider resigning and and so I'm this is the first year I'm living away from home I'm living in a house in you know down in the annex with with uh, with my brother and his wife and their little baby Jenny who's you know just a, a baby and there's you know this that's a whole other story that you know this whole thing that ha was happening at, at home and and so I you know and we're playing music by this point you know we've been playing music um, you know we I joined the musicians union at the age of 14 you know so like uh, I you know 16 months after that Mariposa we're we're I'm signing my union card you know we we're about to do a TV show and, uh, you know, we're playing, uh, you know, regularly in Yorkville and at different coffee houses and stuff like that. So so there was this this tension. And so when they asked me what, you know, what I consider resigning, I said, yeah, <laughs> I was. I knew I was in over my head. And, it, it, you know, it was like it wasn't like happy. I was I, you know, I was you know, this is sort of I'd always thought, oh, I could be a teacher. I'd have the summers off. I could go to folk festivals and you know play music and all this sort of stuff. But but when they said you know do you want to resign, I said okay. Did you know you could just? I mean, did you think if I don't teach, then I'm going to be a musician? That's my yeah. Oh, absolutely. But you see, right out of high school, I couldn't say that. But a year and a half later, 
and you know five months into living on my own and I you know I had all these other experiences was having all these other experiences and so I was in a place where I was ready to say yes I'm gonna be a musician uh, that I couldn't have done right out of high school I, I wonder if I don't know if your experience with teaching especially young kids had anything to do with you doing a lot of children's records absolutely the... absolutely so so the following um so this is that's you know so that's december of 1971 i hand in my resignation and i was also involved in this sort of alternative intentional community so the summer of 71 we had bought a, an old school bus and 20 of us went to Mexico and a, a bunch of people, we wanted to go to Cuernavaca where Ivan Illich, the great philosopher and thinker was talking at that point about how ridiculous the fossil fuels were and, and how you could make, you know, motors and make vehicles locally that would travel at, you know, 20 miles an hour, which is, more than the average speed of what vehicles go in the cities in, you know, and all this kind of very forward thinking in, you know, 50 plus years ago. So so we'd done this trip to Mexico and and one of the people who was, you know, older than me that had sort of st helped start this this community. And he had, and they and a bunch of them had bought a, a farm and they were going to grow organic food up in up near Beaverton. And and so my friend Granger said, Ken, you know, you should run a coffee house in Beaverton, you know, and, and they were and that's when they were giving opportunity for youth grants. And so so I applied for this uh, opportunities for youth grant. And with, you know, my girlfriend at the time and a couple other people, we you know, we we put in a grant application to run this uh, coffee house and call, we called it Circle Around the Sun, which is. The name comes from uh, an old Memphis jug band song, Put Your Arms Around Me Like the Circle Around the Sun. And uh, so so we ran this little coffee house. And then that summer of 72 was the first time that we played at Mariposa as the original sloth band. So my brother and I had played at Mariposa in 1969. That was the first our first festival appearance. But... It was, you know, it was, they had auditions at the riverboat. And uh, so Chris and I went down as, you know, auditioned for this new songwriters concert. And we were known as this jug band. You know, we were part of this five-piece jug band. But this was a songwriters concert. So we, we were writing songs. We were recording songs. We go down and we play in this new songwriters concert with Moe Scarlett and Shirley Eckhard and David Bradstreet and this guy from uh, Coburg named Mo Yurt and um, you know all of there's connections with all of those people through my life and uh, yeah so anyway so 72 we play there with the Sloth Band and then after that Estelle Klein who by this point is the artistic director and basically running Mariposa um she has started uh, the previous year a schools program and she knew about my teaching background. And she said, you know, she, so she got Chris and I 
to start doing Mariposa in the schools work in 72. So we start playing playing schools and and that was where I had the light bulb moment of the revelation. And I actually went back to Flemington Road Public School where I had taught as a Mariposa in the schools performer and gave, you know, five concerts over the course of a day to like, you know, three classes and at that and I and there I'm seeing some of my same kids and I'm realizing, oh yeah, you know, I, I know how to do this. You know, it's like I can I can keep their attention, you know, no problem. You know, now, you know, so this is no no um no slight on the hard work that teachers do. And I, 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 I do want to say that, that that's a, a challenging gig to, to really make that work and, and so on. You know, my wife uh, uh, was a teacher for so many years. And, uh, and uh, you know, I know I've known a lot of teachers. And I've spent a lot of time subsequently in schools. You know, I don't know. You know, so since 1972, I probably played over easily over a thousand school shows. You and know, you've worked life. with people like Fred Penner and Rafi, and, and you've done your own children's albums. Is there a different approach to, as a musician, do you approach it differently if your audience is school kids versus somebody at Mariposa? Well, so with, I'm going to backtrack for a minute here, Mako, because there was an experience that we had as musicians so in the summer of 1971, we were hired to play at this new venue that had been opened at the Brunswick House Hotel on Bloor Street in Toronto. And at the time, people don't think of it, the, the annex at the time, a lot of these big old houses that are now multi-million dollar houses, at the time, a lot of them were rooming houses. And at that, also at that time, there was a lot of uh, draft dodgers coming to Toronto. A hundred thousand, you know, draft dodgers came to Canada in those years, and a lot of them came to Toronto, and a lot of them settled in the annex. At that time, you know, renting renting rooms or renting flats, and um, so the Brunswick House is right there, and they torn out the hotel rooms on the second floor and made that into this bar called Albert's Hall, and uh, and so we opened that room and we played there for 10 weeks and doing four sets a night and uh you know i'll never forget the first saturday night we were playing there uh you know this fight breaks out you know somebody's flipping a table over full of jugs of beer and you know on and on you know so that was a real learning experience playing 10 weeks there you learn how to you know, they weren't all, some of them were just overflow people from the downstairs who just were putting away their drafts. You know, they were not, uh, they were not there for the music. But quickly, you know, there were also people who were, hey, wow, this cool, wacky jug band kind of group, you know, with trumpet and violin and all these wacky washboard and stuff. But, you know, so, the, so we did have our, you know, friends and fans coming, but, but there was also lots of people there who were just there to drink. And you learn how to how to keep their attention. And that was great preparation for working with kids because <laughs> you learn how to keep their attention, you know, how to keep them involved, how to, you know, make them coming, keep coming back to what it is that you're giving for them. So when Chris and I started doing Mariposa in the schools, 
we started taking in all these jug band instruments and and um, and adapting you know adapting other songs that were maybe you know more traditionally used with kids adapting them for for kids and finding ways but we didn't we didn't go in originally with a repertoire of kids songs we went in with you know what from all of the music that we know what's going to work with these kids and we would bring as many instruments as we possibly could and we were constantly like every song with a new instrument shows up you know and so it's like oh what's that you know so you know i'm playing the auto harp and i'm playing the dulcimer and i'm playing the banjo and now here's the five string banjo four string banjo and you know we'll play this song's from new orleans where you know jazz and you know here's you know here's a washboard here's here's the washtub bass and then who who wants to come up and play some washboard with us you know and so we'd have like three washboards two kids you know always get a boy and a girl and and I'd play washboards of the three of us and you know you know so we developed this whole uh, I hesitate to call it a shtick but you know a way of of involving kids using the music that we knew and loved did did you and Chris always um I mean, if you started together and you obviously you listened to a lot of the same music together, did did your musical ideas always parallel one another? Well, there was a lot of parallel in those days, but it wasn't always uh, absolutely parallel. Um, but in, in those days, a lot more of it was. Um, and so then we even start doing, we start doing... Uh, our school shows separately, you know, like, and, and that's when more things began to evolve. And then in 1974, again, you know, through this intentional community, they, they, this, uh, another guy, Don Wilkinson is running a drop-in center up in what's called the peanut up where Don Mills road, North of Shepherd, the northbound goes, wiggles one way around the high school and the arena and a little plaza and then the southbound wiggles around the other side of it and that's called the and it's surrounded by all these high-rises apartments and at the time it was the most densely populated part of Canada so my friend was running a drop-in center he had two old school portables adjacent to the to the arena and he's running working for North York Parks and Rec and so he hires me. He says, we don't really need the two portables for the youth center. So you ran that coffee house, you know, the opportunities for youth grant. Maybe you could turn one of them into a coffee house and we could do that in the one. And, and we'll, you know, keep running the youth center out of the other one. So I started in 74. I start running this this coffee house up in North York called Shire's Coffee House. And. And so then also in 1974, all of these, so by then, that's when, that's really, there was a real explosion in the whole folk scene in uh, Southern Ontario. And, you know, right around that time was when the first uh, home county folk festival in London and the Owen Sound Summer Folk Festival started. And, uh, you know, there were festivals in Ottawa and Kingston and, you know, all over the place, people were having festivals. Blue Skies Festival started around that time. You know, 73, I think, was Blue Skies. And Sudbury, Northern Lights. You know, so we were playing all these festivals. We were going down to Smale's Pace in London, Ontario, 
you know, and, and coffee house, you know, Campbell's in Hamilton and, you know, all these different coffee houses, uh, you know, the Bitter Grounds down in Kingston and, you know, and then ones at Trent, you know, the, all the universities had would have coffee houses in those days and stuff like that. So we're playing all the time. And I start running my own coffee house on this salary of $35 a week from North York Parks and Rec. And um, uh, and I, you know, put my own PA system in it. And, you know, we, you know, make, uh, we bought a bunch of, we bought 60 chairs from the Walsingham Hotel, which, uh, you know, became the Midwich Cuckoo, but they were selling off all the old bar chairs for 50 cents each. So, you know, 60 chairs for 30 bucks and, and just bought tables and put them on a little, you know, pieces of uh, particle board, made little tables and, you know, so uh, totally on the cheap. A couple of floodlights and tin cans to make stage lights. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I moved my piano there. And, uh, and, uh, and so we were, uh, you know, there we were. And, and it quickly evolved into where I started playing with all of the performers who would play if they wanted me to. So, you know, Willie P. Bennett would come and Dave Essig would come and uh, Stan Rogers, Dan Hill, uh, bluegrass bands, uh, you know, like the Dixie Flyers, you know, so we, Jackie Washington, Moe Scarlett, David Bradstreet, Shirley Eckhard, all of these people would, 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 would be playing there. And another one of them was this uh, folk singer, songwriter, uh, Rafi Kavukian, you know, playing under the name Rafi. And, and so around 74, 75, his wife's a kindergarten teacher. He's, he's recorded on his own, you know, uh, one album of his uh, original songs that, you know, and, and, uh, and his mother-in-law, who runs a nursery school, says, Rafi, you should, you know, you should make an album for children. You know, there's, there's no good Canadian children's records. And so, so he called me up. And by this point, with the Sloth Band, we've made two albums. We made our first album in 1973. Um, our old friend Graham Jones, my our friend from Don Mills. So we started recording music in in the 60s, and both you know we had Chris and I had a had a reel-to-reel tape recorder that that had a sync head. It could record what they used to call sound on sound. Right. So you could so the two of us would play. Well, uh, you know, uh, you know, once through and then we could listen in headphones and play along on the second, uh, you know, the second track. And so you would have, uh, you know, we could sing harmonies with ourselves. We could, you know, play piano and guitar, all kinds of stuff like that. And then our friend Graham, we began going over to Graham's house, who also had a two track tape recorder with that and making tapes with him. And then in 73, he bought up, you know, he moved up to a Revox tape recorder, a you know, much better tape recorder. And uh, he bought a, a an eight foot long spring reverb. I don't know where that I wish I had that spring <laughs> reverb. It sounded great. You know, uh, I'm sure it was uh, tube driven and, you know, but, you know, this you know, it was in the basement. He so any and he, and, and uh, he had four good microphones and a little you know, probably a Scully board or something like that, you know, something that was reasonably good, but he got secondhand and, 
you know, with four inputs and, and send that. So we made our first record with Graham um, uh, in 1973 and then became friends with Dave Essig. You know, he's, he's, he wants to record the Sloth Band and he says, oh, you know, hey, there's these two brothers down near Hamilton. Uh, let's, let's go and record there. So we went uh, and to Ancaster, where Bob and Dan Lanois, these two brothers, had started a studio in their mother's basement. And, um, and we recorded Sloth Band album there. We recorded with Jackie Washington there. And so Raffi approached me in the spring of 76, and he says, I've got this idea to make a kid's record. And I, you know, we knew each other pretty well by then from Shires, and, you know, I'd play with him a bit and stuff. And he said, would you help me record it? You know, you've got lots of experience with working with kids and you play lots of instruments and, you know, would you co-produce it with me? And, and so, uh, so, so we went in to, uh, you know, the Danny Lanois uh, engineering and, you know, another sort of pivotal moment of my life was that first morning, you know, where, you know, Danny turns to me and says, uh, Ken, how does the guitar sound? And all of a sudden, I, I, there's like a shift, and I sort of like never realize, oh, he's looking to me as the producer or co-producer to sort of say how the how does the guitar sound. So I have, let me hear it again. You know, <laughs> you sort of step back and you sort of go, okay, let me listen to this, and start you know learning. Be, that began the process of really learning about recording and what's you know what became a, a lifelong interest in how to make things sound good on a recording so you know that was a, another turning point but it was a turning point in more ways than one obviously because you know when we finished that first Raffi album you know I remember you know we I was pretty excited about it I thought this was a really fun piece of work and it was really fun for me because all of a sudden the the any of the sort of stereotypes were off. You know, there was kind of, at that point, there was kind of a separation. You know, with the Sloth Band, we didn't play really our original songs at that point. We were doing just all old music, old blues and old jazz and stuff. And, you know, the singer-songwriters were doing their thing. You know, there was bluegrass bands. They would play bluegrass. You know, there was a beginning, of, there was an old-timey scene. But things were pretty, you know, even though it was all part of the folk world, there was, um, there was, you know, certainly divisions, uh, if you will. But here, you know, how do we want to approach this song? Well, let's do this. You know, it was like an open palette. You could make it whatever you wanted. And I could say, that sounds, you know, Robin in the Rain, that should be an old jazz song, you know, like that. You know, on a, you know with put, put swing chords behind it, you know, you know, bumping up and down in my little red wagon. Well, that's got to be a jug band song with, you know, we've got to put the washboard and jug and, you know, all that, you know, kazoos and things like that on on that. So anyway, so we I was excited when we finished that album and we felt really good about it. I remember going down to play the Yellow Door Coffee House in, in Montreal uh, that fall, you know, just that I had the mixes on a cassette and Doc McLean's going to just go down for the fun and play harmonica with me on this trip and and uh, i'm we i you know play the cassette for him you know of of the singable songs for the very young this this raffy kids album and you know he, oh this is great so we we felt really good about it 
But we had no idea that that record was going to sell like three million copies, which is what it's now eventually sold. You know, it's sort of become a, a good night moon of, you know, young childs uh, growing up. You know, so many kids are exposed to Rafi and, and so on. And and for me, it, it, it also really opened up the whole door of production because when that album came out, other people, you know, I think, you know, one of the first was, you know, uh, a songwriter who was working in kids, you know, Jerry Brody said, hey, Ken, will you produce my record? And I said, sure, you know, and, you know, so it was like quickly evolved into this thing. Um, does, it, does it support, um, does it change you when you have success like that? I, I don't know what well, the, kind of the success. The, the success didn't happen overnight. And, and uh, you know, so... You know, like it was just remarkable that when Singable Songs of the Very Young came out, Raffi made his money back. Like the $4,000 or whatever it was that the whole album cost to make. You know, studio time, my fee. He, it was originally I agreed to do it for $300, I think. I think he upped it to 500 you know, uh, you know, which was like weeks of work. But, you know, I mean, it was, I was happy to do it. That was, a, you know, a good amount of chunk of change for me in those days, you know, 25 year old. And and uh, so it, he made his money back. And that was like that was mind blowing in and of itself. And it was, you know, just it it, it evolved, you know, by, by the time we made Baby Beluga in in 1979, I guess that was. You know, we were. It was already. It, would, it had become quite successful. He was touring across the, Canada and doing shows in the United States, and but successful not in the millions and millions of copies, but certainly thousands and thousands. And he would do a concert for at a you know five hundred seat theater, and then he would sell three or four hundred albums at, at the after the concert. You know and everyone would leave with an album and 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 so it it really took off because it was the first of its generation of these kind of where where the kids were not it was not talking talking down to the kids and it was fun and it was accessible but and the music there was a some sophistication to the music even though um there was still a lot of attention to say enunciation and topics that were you know it wasn't it wasn't wide open and i you know now there's like now i don't know that's a whole other topic about you know what does and doesn't go down in terms of what's appropriate for kids and what's best for kids i guess two different questions but uh, don't start me talking i'll tell everything <laughs> i know as sunny boy said well, the other another artist you worked with was leon redbone tell me how that came about well, Leon uh, used to play, we first met him at Fiddler's Green. Uh, Fiddler's Green was a coffee house, another one of these weird little anomalies from the early 70s that um, the this bunch of British singers, originally these two Scottish guys, Tam Kearney and Jim Strickland and Tam's wife, Margot, and they started it on the idea of like a British folk club where you would have floor singers so there were people who were singing every week there come and sing every week do two or three songs and then you'd have a featured set so that they it was a slightly different format than most festivals because our most 
most coffee house type things. And they didn't really serve coffee and stuff like that. It was just a folk club uh, at the back of the YMCA on Eglinton. And, um, and so anyway, Leon, I met Leon through there and other, you know, I met him at Grumble's uh, coffee house that Ryerson used to run and, and things like that. And we were both playing old music from the 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, Leon had this whole sort of uh, mystique and, you know, he, he, he and Moe Scarlett were quite good friends in those days. Uh, you know, Moe's was also a, a good friend of, of mine. And, and, and then Leon played uh, at the Buffalo, I think it was the Buffalo Folk Festival. It might have been the one at Cornell and Ithaca. But anyway, he met this woman, Beryl Handler, who was promoting shows in, I think, in Buffalo and eventually became his wife and manager. And, and so this is mid-70s. And all of a sudden, Leon is like, you know, playing on, uh, you know, and he was one of the early sort of discoveries of Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, you know, and, and she got him a deal like she knew Mary Martin at Warner Brothers Records. And so she got him a, a Warner Brothers record deal. And so between, you know, and that so that confluence of things with uh, not to forget Leon's musical talent and his ability with these old songs. I mean, that's where it really starts. I've seen, you know, so many people, I would say pretty much everybody who becomes famous has some kind of talent. There's a lot of people who are really talented who don't become famous. Like to become famous, you need more than talent. Right. But very few people become famous without some kind of talent. It might be specific, it might be broad, but whatever. Anyway, Leon was, was talented. He had this you know, eccentric personality that he developed out of out of who he in fact was. You know, it was partly, you know, having seen him before, it was kind of as fully developed as it became. And then, so anyway, so we knew Leon. He's making records for Warner Brothers. Uh, we're playing at uh, a place uh, on Bay Street uh, run by the... Uh, uh, the, the Stinson family, uh, Harry Stinson, and called The Groaning Board. And unbeknownst to us, Joel Dorn, his producer, comes uh, to see us play at The Groaning Board, really enjoys it. And, I, and so I don't know if he went there specifically because Leon and Beryl said, you should check out these guys. And, but to, uh, up until then, the, the, the first couple, two records Leon had made where he would record just Leon and then he would put things on top of it. Right. And, and it was, and sometimes Leon would, you know, Leon was used to playing by himself and great musician though he was, sometimes he would drop a beat in a bar or, you know, this tempos would change tempo, things like that. So the idea was to have a bunch of musicians who could actually accompany him live off the floor. And so uh, they asked us if we wanted to come to New York and, and record with him. And sure, you know, because we we uh, we knew him from from Toronto quite well, and happy to happy to do that. It was a great great experience, and and so there we are, you know, recording at Regent Sound in in New York, where all these you know hit records of the fifties and sixties had been made, and 
where you know this producer Joel Dorn who you know recorded some of my you know classic uh, Roland Kirk albums or you know uh, Marion Williams favorite gospel albums and all these different things so he's he's producing and and we spend three weeks three separate weeks you know working with Leon develop a bit of a system and you know John Belushi from Saturday Night Live is coming by to hang out after you know at the studio and all the it's this whole scene right you know you know and then and then when the record comes out we we play Saturday Night Live with Leon we we do a bunch of tours with him and and um and then uh you know a a, a Something happened where there was a 10-week tour coming up with uh, where Leon was going to be doing a double bill with Tom Waits. And the Sloth Band wasn't going to do it. Tom Evans, who was the third member with my brother Chris of the, of the Sloth, the, the third sort of key member, we started with a washtub bass and washboard player. And then in the 70s, we morphed into having a string bass player and a drummer. So, um, but the, that it, the, the three of us that were sort of the core group of it, uh, Chris and Tom and I, but Tom became an optometrist. So he was not going on the road for 10 weeks. That was not happening. <laughs> and Chris, Chris had two, two uh, young kids by this point. And, you know, it, it was, you know, his life had its own complications. And um, I considered considered it but i actually had some of the first gigs i was going to be doing with rafi like up until then rafi had been doing his kids shows solo but so i and i had a a whole whack of mariposa in the schools concerts that i was booked for so i was going to be making decent money staying home and i didn't want i i hate to sort of take a gig and then turn it down so I turned down the um, doing these 10 weeks touring with Leon. And I said, but there's but, you know, I know a young guy here, uh, you know, who, who was, you know, then he was only like 18. And I said, Colin Linden, he could do it. You know, he could do this. You know, so he he goes on tour with Leon and, you know so that's you can talk to Colin about that and find out where that story led but uh but uh, and I stayed in Toronto and you know worked with Raffi until 1987 uh you know we did 11 albums together and toured all over North America and you know did that whole thing and as you mentioned other you know I've probably produced about 75 kids records by different artists wow and um of the you know 185 records I've produced, and uh, yeah, so so I stayed in in Toronto, but then um, in 1979, I had the idea to I'd I'd had this idea for a while percolating in my mind that I wanted to make a gospel album, and I'd met at the. Can I ask you where, where does that love of gospel come from? comes from the divine it comes it's a gift from god i'm it's god's grace my friend it's you know i'm being only half joking when i say it like that but and i don't want to in any way denigrate what i think about that it's a, it's a complex answer you know and um i don't know if what you think of the law of karma for example 
and to me it's karma is it, it as espoused in hinduism and buddhism it doesn't have to be the way things are but it's it's the most tenable hypothesis that that i you know accept as the as a, as the highly tenable hypothesis if you believe in karma then a lot of things that don't make sense otherwise do make sense you know and clearly we all come on the you know whether it's karma or not we clearly all come to the planet with a deck of cards we can play the cards quite differently depending on you know how we and it's a complex it's, you know it's complicated you know it's not a, it's not as simple as you know seven cards or five cards it's it's a it's a you know we have a full complicated deck of of things that we've already been given that are our circumstances what we inherit from you know the dna the genetics from our parents you know the culture that we're born into but also something else that's not just environmentally determined given to us but something that we seem to come with and you know you'll see two kids in the same family and they seem like night and day you know one kid is really mellow and another kid's like you know full of different kind of very different energy and you know whatever we really seem to come with with a lot of propensities and 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 um, things within us like so my father was a pretty spiritual guy. He was an elder in the in the Presbyterian Church, um, and as his brother was a United Church minister. But I I took it upon myself. We weren't never forced to go to church, you know. I we did go sometimes, um, but I decided to go myself to Sunday school. I wanted to do that. I mean, you know, it was you know, it was, so I would often get up first you know and go to to sunday school because i wanted to do that and um you know so i was drawn to to this kind of stuff and then when i was uh 12 my my parents said do you want to go to summer camp and they brought a bunch of brochures home of different summer camps that i could go to and i chose to go to a pentecostal summer camp because the the one of the things on the brochure was it said it was god-centered so there, you know, lots of lots of gospel singing at this Pentecostal summer camp. And, you know, there, there was this guy, Woody, who would, you know, get, uh, you know, once or twice. Not, not, you know, it was kids. It wasn't it wasn't a, you know, camp meeting on the ground. But, you know, it would get it would get uh, it would get good to some people sometimes. And and, uh, you know, so I had this I had this calling within myself i would say you know to to call to that i was I, I felt drawn to it and you know reverend gary davis was this perfect combination to me of the blues and and the gospel you know and and seeing him get the spirit and and was just so inspiring to me and 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 all these different things so i'd been a huge fan of this kind of music and and the the music of uh you know the Gullah people of the coastal region of Carol the Carolinas and Georgia the uh, African American Gullah culture which is its own unique um, culture where the original captured Africans were brought to you know Charleston and Savannah the main entry points and uh, that you know seeing Bessie Jones and the Georgia Sea Island singers. And and then later, when it when it was Bessie Jones and her niece and nephew, uh, when the first time I saw them was 1969, and again a mind blowing moment for me, 
They were so incredible. And that was, and at that point, Bessie Jones was one of the younger people in that group. The original group had been started in the, in the um, 1930s. Maxfield Parish and his wife Lydia Parish had a summer place on St. Simon's Island in off the coast of Georgia. And they heard this incredible music and they said, you know, let's, we should form a group of people who could sing this and present this and stuff like that. And so that was the, the original Georgia Sea Island singers. And Alan Lomax recorded them in the 50s and, and so on. And, and then Bessie Jones, and then when they began to no longer perform as a group, Bessie started singing with her niece and nephew. Uh, Frankie and Doug Quimby, and and so the three of them continued to do that, and and they were uh, popular artists at Mariposa. They would come not every year, but a number of times. So a lot of that. So so I had a lot of these different things. I I'd, I'd gotten into, um, you know, I love I just love singing and I love harmony singing. So as well as bluegrass stuff, you know, I was really into gospel quartets and the Golden Gate Quartet and the Dixie Hummingbirds and the Harmonizing Four and all, all the, you know, the Blind Boys of Alabama and the Blind Boys of Mississippi and, you know, all these different, uh, different, different, court, you know, African-American male quartets. Um, so I had the idea to, to make this album and, you know, I met... Uh, you know, I'd gotten to know Richard Flohill after in the 60s. And, and he he lent me, you know, I was able to record some of his old 78s he had of Sister Rosetta Tharp and Marie Knight. He said, you, Ken, you've got to hear this, you know. I remember, you know, going up to his place when he still lived in North York and, um, you know, him playing me this and then putting it on a cassette for me uh, up above my head. So I had this idea to make a gospel record. And uh, went down to Grand Avenue, working with Danny Lanois, and 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 I'd met these three young sisters uh, up in Sudbury at the Northern Lights Festival. A guitar player up there named Paul Dunn had introduced me to them, and they were really into the Andrew sisters. There, two of them were sisters, and and then their close friend Diane. So Marion and Eileen Tobin, and their mother had sang, and you know, so they were into this uh, music that the Sloth Band played. But I began, you know, in an after-hours festival jam singing with them, and I wanted to get them to come down and sing on this record. That's when I recorded my own first, you know, Ken Whiteley album. It was in 1979 it came out, and it was called Up Above My Head, based on that Sister Rosetta Tharp song. And again, it was very eclectic. I, you know, there's... Chris features prominently in, in on it. He, you know, he sings lead on some of the songs. Do you think your the versatility that you have in music and all the different kinds of music that you love, did that ever work against you? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That's you know, you, you know, it's you know, how do you, you know, I don't know how long we've been talking, but it's been you know, more than an hour probably at this point, and. You know, and we we aren't even out of the seventies. You know, <laughs> we're not. You know, we have another forty years of my career to to. Not, I mean, not that we'll necessarily cover it all in depth, but but just to sort of suggest that uh, it's it's very hard to to market something or someone who is 
who can do this and do that and do this and you know and likes this kind of music and likes that kind of music and you know you know so but does that matter it's like to you? i i like does the, it matter to me like well if if i wasn't able to make a living it would matter to me but the fact that i'm able to make a living i feel incredibly blessed so you know i can go to you know i mean i can do you know go and be the special guest with Gary Kendall's blues band, you know, at the Mighty Duck or, you know, or wherever he's got, you know, one of his weekly gigs with special guests, you know, that kind of thing. And I can play, you know, a whole set of electric blues and, and, and I love that music and, and I could fit in that. And if I had devoted myself exclusively to that, then I would probably have a prominence in the blues world that I'd, don't have at all because and if I had devoted myself as a singer songwriter if I was just known as a singer songwriter and if I had put all my focus and energy into developing that craft and that skill and touring that and so on that would have opened a different kind of path to my life but but I feel really lucky and and the studio work has meant that that I have not had to spend my whole adult life on the road and you know, that's a blessing and a curse in its own way. You know, certainly it does, you know, being on the road is how you get more people to know who you are. But uh, but being home means that, you know, my wife and I have been together for 40 years and I've got to watch my son grow and, you know, that kind of stability. And that's afforded by having, being able to do my music, you know, working on other people's records in the studio. So, so, so it, it works for me because I'm able to fashion a, a unique path through this being a musician thing. But it, it's not a formula for success in the you know, more stereotypical uh, way that you look at success. But how do you, how do you define success? Irrelevant. <laughs> no, I survived to find I'm a little facetious there. But, you know, success is, uh, you know, I, success as, as fame and fortune. Yeah, it's, it's not really what life is about. Life is about being happy, you know, and, and certainly you have to meet your fundamental needs. And, you know, you have to have a place to live. You have to have food to eat, hopefully good, healthy food. You have to, um, you want to be you know, where in a community with, you know, where you have, you know, love and friendship and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and so, so when you have those needs all met, when you are part of a loving community or loving communities even, and when you have love in your life and when you have, you know, uh, certainly at the physical level all of your needs met and you're doing something you love playing music, then that's that's success, and it's not fame and fortune. I'm not rich, and I'm not uh, certainly not rich on the basis of the music. You know, you, you know, I'm lucky enough now. I'm getting Canadian pension plan, but there's you know, you look at the printout, and there's lots of years where my net income was zero because you know I ended up spending all the money I made. You know, playing music, right, and and. Um, you know, so it's it's not it's not fame and fortune, but it's I guess you could say it's it's success if it, by the terms that I'm using to measure it. 
but you get to do what you want to do. I mean, it's pretty amazing that you say, I want to do this kind of album, and you do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, during the pandemic, I finished two albums of my own. You know, two new projects. And one of them is a collaboration with a Sufi musician from Iran. And, uh, and the other is an album where I've reworked a bunch of old folk songs, mostly well-known folk songs, and put a new spin on them or whatever, written new words in some cases, you know, messed with the, the concepts even in some cases. So, so how does yes. that happen? Like, how do you come up with that idea? Well, that particular idea, yeah. you know, each each case is unique, you know, like and they often things flow out of out of out of the out of what what you were doing, like, you know, just to sort of put it in a little more historical perspective. So I in, you know, and I'll bring us back to the earlier chronology, if I may. Mm -hmm. Do you mind? Is that OK? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I put out this record in 1979. That's Ken Whiteley with the original Sloth Band and the Honolulu Heartbreakers. And then. At the end of 1980, we decide to sort of stop doing the sloth band as the, uh, for full time. By then, my brother is now with this woman, Caitlin Hanford, and they're doing, he's writing and writing more and more songs, and they're doing a country duo. And, and I'm, and Tom is like, you know, it's been, you know, we could have been full time musicians as the sloth band and toured and do, done that. You know, because we were getting lots of work and we were playing in the States and Canada and, you know, more opportunities were opening up and stuff like that. You know, and we, and we would be, you know, like, you know, the kind of act that they would put on at a festival on the evening concert at, you know, 8.30 just after the sun went down. You know, it's like prime spots, you know, kind of where, the, you know, get the crowd going and things. But, but so, so Tom, who was the optometrist, he decides to get married to one of those women from Sudbury, the one that wasn't a sister, and and he's he doesn't want to tour so much anymore. He's you know, he's still into playing, but he doesn't want to tour anymore. And and uh, Chris is going to play with Caitlin, and they're going to do the country thing and play his original songs. So then I decide, what I really want to do is I'll, I'm going to try and be more focused. Okay, I'm, I'm following up on you know, not be so eclectic, and. I have the idea that what I was one of the things that we were really just starting to do, like one, the last before the sloth band stopped playing full time, we put out a single uh, and the A side of it was our version of the old Eddie Floyd song, six, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine. And I said, OK, I'm going to start in like a my own spin on an R&B kind of band, you know, and play some blues and R&B. It'll be kind of rootsy, funky R&B, you know, and I, you know, as so we had Jody Golick on saxophone and, and uh, you know, keyboard, you know, Hammond organ, female vocalist, bass, drums. This and, is the Paradise Review. Ken Whiteley in the Paradise Review. And so, you know, doing about one third uh, original songs, you know, and, and, it, and it kind of primes my pump to start writing songs that suit that that format and one third kind of obscure songs you know how can you know i want to find like the r&b songs nobody's ever heard of and then you know ha knowing that to fill albert's hall or wherever it is we're playing a uh, horseshoe or whatever we're playing the bamboo 
you know, a third of them will be songs that people do know and, you know, get people out in the dance floor, you know, get the house rocking. So, so, um, so yeah, so that was the Paradise Review. So I did two albums with the Paradise Review and, you know, each thing kind of evolves and, and kind of uh, predicts where the next thing is, is going to go, you know, the, so my folk song album that I just made, how did I get the idea for that? I, I, when the pandemic started, I had just released a new album called Calm in the Eye of the Storm. And it was a, a singer-songwriter album, and it, it had spiritual themes, some stuff. It, I, some of it was, you know, real sort of African-American-style gospel. I did a few tracks with this, with uh, this woman, Nikki D, and the, and the Sisters of Thunder. You know, she and her sister and her cousin, these... these you know, African-American sacred steel player from Toledo, Ohio. And, and some of it was, was folkier and, and, uh, and a bunch of stuff with my dear, dear singing companions for 25 years, Amoy and Cecile Levy. And um, so that came out the week before the pandemic lockdown starts. And, uh, but I had two albums of other artists that I was producing two albums where we had recorded pretty much all the tracks, but they hadn't been mixed yet. And one of them needed a few overdubs and things, but, but, but mostly done. All, all the work that anyone else had to do was done. And uh, so for the first um, eight months of the pandemic, I would just work on those, you know, at a sort of pandemic pace of, you know, I could... All of a sudden, there was no artist there, you know, no client in the room or anything like that, so to speak. I don't, I don't think of the artists I work with as clients, but you know, but when they come for a day in the studio, they kind of expect to spend the day working. But now I could, I could mix for two and a half hours, and then I could go for a walk for an hour with my wife, and then come back, and and then work for another two and a half hours and call it a day. You know, it was, you know, start at eleven, start my sessions at eleven. You know, it was like. <laughs> Well, the other thing you did during the pandemic was actually put on or play a few songs outside every day, correct? Yeah, so that so that did impose that was the one structure <laughs> that was sort of imposed on my on our lives for 550 nights where 7:30 got to go outside, you know, March 19th, we uh, my wife had read a um a bulletin that had been put out by the um Nurses Association saying, you know, go out and make some noise at 730, sing a song, whatever, you know, to honor front, you know, to support for frontline workers. So Ellen said this to me and I said, like, oh, we can do that. And, and my son, Ben, who is now a professional musician, he was supposed to have been going on tour and his the place where he was, you know, he was supposed to have renovation happen while he was on tour but it, it his you know what it, his apartment wasn't ready he was staying with us so for the beginning of the pandemic he's there i'm there said okay let's go out you know 7:30 we'll go out and start singing you know <laughs> ellen calls up the people across the hey ken and now ben are going to go out and sing at 7:30 you know come out and say hi within a week you know it's, it's like 50 people coming out every night at 7:30 and it creates this whole momentum so and then, uh, you know, discover, I knew there was these 
this young couple across the street who uh, who were musicians didn't really know them very well, you know, but I'd see them, you know, loading an electric piano into back of a van now and then. So they start coming out, you know, they start playing with us and, you know, well, then you guys should do a song. And, you know, Sam down the street, you know, who's been bringing his conga. Well, he's also sings and plays guitar and and, uh, you know, so it becomes this whole thing. We're singing on the street and, and we did it every night for 550 nights so after we've so after 18 months so in the fall of 2021 we we finally said you know and and by then things are kind of loosening up most of us are vaccinated we kind of think oh it's we had always thought this is going to end someday and then we kind of realized it's not exactly going to just end it's going to kind of <laughs> right. morph as it however it will so we said okay well as you know, when you know daylight savings, you know it's going to start being dark now at 7:30. Let's just do it three nights a week. So from then till till uh, the solstice, we did it three nights a week. And and then since the solstice, we've been doing it about one night a week. We're still doing it, but not every night. You know, we we were out last night, but last night was Violet's birthday. So Sam, the conga player and singer, he and his wife Keegan, you know, they're daughter is now two years old and for almost you know every night of her life she has gone out at 7 30 <laughs> and the neighbors all come out and sing you know and make noise for frontline workers and uh you know so so it was her birthday yesterday so we we had to sing for violet's birthday and what what did that experience do for you i mentioned earlier the idea of community and yeah. and and in fact, and I think I even pluralized it, that, that we have communities, but certainly to be able to connect with where you live and the people that we live in, live with rather, in this, people think of downtown um, neighborhoods as being isolated, people isolated from each other. And, and certainly there are people on this block that I still don't know, but I start to, you know, you start to recognize them. But there were all these people on this block that I didn't know at all. And I've lived on this in this house where I'm in for 35 years. And uh, through the through coming out and singing and all the you know, people, well, hey, what's going on? Met all these incredible people and all of this, this whole span of ages, you know. So, you know, I mentioned singing for Violet. Well, the week before we sang for Isabel, it was her 90th birthday. And uh, and. You know, so all these, it just is such a great thing to to be able to really feel like you're part of a community. You know, Kim and, and Mike, who play across the street, and they have a group called Zuffalo, and, you know, they're really good musicians, uh, you know, been through Humber and all that. And Kim got a new acoustic piano in their apartment in the in the place across the street. And so for, for about five or six months, we actually had an acoustic piano out on their front lawn that we used. And uh, people were doing, taking piano lessons on the front lawn outside, you know, during the pandemic when, we, when people couldn't do that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and so for me, it was not only was it about community, though, it also meant you going out and playing every night, even if it was just two or three songs, and uh, singing and singing out. So, you know, not like it's very different to just sing you know, in your bedroom, in your 
basement in your basement studio, whatever, than to sing out to you know project to a whole group and with especially no PA system, you know you're you're putting it out there. So so it kept me in so much better shape. You know, so many musicians I know and people who don't even live on our block. You know, Mike Evan. I don't know if you know Mike, but you know, really good piano players and stuff like that. He started coming and bring. He would borrow my accordion and you know leading songs just because partly for the community and partly just because it was a chance to just get out there and, and play music in a time when when we couldn't do that and you know it's great that people are now finally able to do it are you still planning to um give out a song a month or is that with, with one of your albums you're still planning to yeah so so how do i so if i'm not doing gigs though you know, and I've I made this album during the pandemic. I play the only people playing on it is I do most of the instruments and all the singing, and then my son Ben play bass on some of it and drums on it, and 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 it, and so it's so that's the only people on it. Uh, but so how do you? The album didn't really cost me a lot to put to make. You know, I, I for to mix it, I got Nick, my engineer, involved. So you know, because he, he's very fastidious, and he, you know, wants to make sure that if I've got stereo mics on the guitars, they're in phase, and you know, he 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 likes to pay attention to all those kinds of details, which I sometimes ah sounds good, I like it, you know, <laughs> keep going, you know, oh there's a little distortion on my voice. Oh. Nick said no, no, we'll run that through RX, you know, I don't, you know, we can't have that, you know. So, so he's a good check for me, good balance for me, uh, mixing. And, and uh, he had the hard drive in, in his studio in Guelph and would send me files. We'd send files back and forth. But that's how we mixed it. And then eventually in the fall when things were opening up, he actually came and we mixed together, which is the best. But, so I finished this album. How do, you, how do you get it out to people? I figured may as well give it away. You know, the, I, I once saw a person talking, you know, one of these music conferences, you know, about the pink spoon. You know, you should have a pink spoon on your website, which is like an, an, a, a metaphor from the ice cream place where you could have a taste of the ice cream, you know, when a little pink spoon. Right. Uh, not enough to, you know, not enough to fill you up, but just to sort of say, oh, yeah, that's really good. So, you know, this metaphor of the pink spoon. So... So how do you, how do you get people interested in your album? Well, you could you could try giving it away, you know, uh, since I don't really and and it it drives more traffic to my website. And and then you find people are downloading my song and then they're going, "Hey, I don't have that album." Oh, I didn't know he made that album or, you know, they go on your website, they start looking around and so that's kenwhitely.com and you'll be putting up yeah, a new song. A, a new song for Valentine's Day. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so these are all from this, from this folk song. And the first one was the title song called Long Time Travelin', and, um, which I learned from Frank Prophet. Frank Prophet was the traditional Appalachian singer that the, that the uh, Kingston Trio, not directly, but indirectly got the song, Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. You know, so that was from Frank Prophet, so... And the next one is going to be a version of Shenandoah. I have to make a little video. I was explaining this idea, and I said, I want to have, like, the old Folkways liner notes, you know, where they'd actually have, like, a, you'd pull out this whole booklet of, you know, yeah, notes yeah. about the songs. And 
Mike Seeger or a folklorist would have written a whole, you know, dissertation about the, the project. And I was telling this to, to a young woman singer who was coming out on our street, actually, you know, a, a woman from Guatemala, you know, in her 20s. And she's like, yeah, but you know, why wouldn't you just make a video of it? Just tell, tell people what you want. Want to tell them on a, on a little video, put it up on YouTube and, and that'll be that. You know, so, so it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. So, so I'm making little videos for, with, the, with the Folkways liner notes version, you know, in a, in, a, in a sort of video form of the kind of intro to the song. And, and, uh, and, and then you can download the actual recording for free. So That's great. Ken, I'm going to have to wrap this up, but let me ask you one final question. When you think back to that young kid at Mariposa, looking at these artists and thinking, that's what I want to do, was there a moment where you thought, yeah, that's who I am? Or I've come uh, to the place that I wanted to go to? I would say that it's been, um, it, uh, there have been, again, a few turning points. So when I was in my 30s and I had gotten together with Ellen, the woman who is now my wife, and she had been an art teacher and she had taught visual art and she took me up to her friends Judith and Victor Tinkle who are visual artists they Victor had bought this schoolhouse in the 60s and it is this incredible work of art itself and Victor makes all this art and he's kind of like yeah I just do it because I'm an artist that's what I do I make art and so Victor was someone who gave me the confidence to, to stop saying, I want success. I, want to, I have to make it in the music business and say, yeah, I'm a musician. I make art. I make music. That's what I do. I'm able to make a living at it and take it or leave it. You know, I'll make the music I want to make. So Victor, that was like a, a little key for me, you know, meeting Victor Tinkle. And, and so that once you have that attitude then it, it really changes the dynamic because you're no longer trying to achieve this gold ring out there, you know. Um, so when I'm nominated for a Juno Award and I don't win it, my wife buys me an eggplant and we have the, you know, the eggplant award. And, and now on the WhatsApp group, on the Roxton Road Google group, or, you know, when we're, you know, the musicians group, now we know that if I put an eggplant on there, for, I'm saying, great choice, or, you know, that's, that's like... The internal success, you know, yes, we feel good about this. So, so yeah, I would say over the last 15 years, I, I've started, you know, I've thought back to that kid who wanted to be an old blues singer, and I've thought, I'm getting close. I'm, I'm kind of ramping up to that, you know. And, uh, and who knows how the universe will unfold. I don't have a... You know, if I never have success, that's, you know, if I can keep doing what I'm doing, that will be success of its own kind. And if, uh, if something happens where, like Mississippi John Hurt, who only, you know, sold hundreds of his original 78s that came out, becomes, you know, this incredibly influential figure who you know was uh you know influenced so many people and what you know so popular i'm you know that you look at some of these 
you know, the Sam Chapman, another of the old blues people that, that I had the privilege of knowing. And, you know, you see like Sam Chapman's version of Pallet on the Floor, you know, has two and a half million views on YouTube. You know, it's like, will I ever have two and a half million views on YouTube? I don't know. You know, and that's not really going to be the measure of success. But, you know, we, 50 years from now, maybe people will say, wow, there was this really interesting guy in Canada in the, in the late 20th, early 21st century who made all this amazing music. That would be really wonderful if that happened, you know, 50 years from now, you know. So who knows how it'll all play out. Well, uh, the fact that you've done it all your life and to make all the music that you have and to produce all the albums that you have, that to me is success. And it's such an Absolutely. honor to talk to you. Yeah, oh, Marco, great to talk to you. Thank you yeah. so much for doing this. And thank you for all the support you've given, you know, because without people like you documenting what people are doing, then there is no way people 50 years from now are going to know what people do no. or have been doing. And so it's it's really great that, that you've put so much of your heart and soul into making this available to people. Thank you. It's, it's totally a selfish endeavor. <laughs> <laughs> just, At one level, I guess it all is. We, uh, if we weren't enjoying it, we wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, thank yeah, you so yeah. much, Ken. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Marco. Yeah. Thank you. 